Today we're starting a new sermon series, and I, I guess it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's prophetic or something, but we're, we're moving into a sermon series now where we're looking at our faith and how we address, how we engage, how we use our faith in the, in the public sphere, in the environment around us. And I think if, if you've been perceptive at all, you can see what's happening in the United Methodist Church is really just a reflection of what's happening in our culture. Uh, people are looking at the issues and they're running to their corners. There doesn't seem to be any room in the middle anymore. And I've been preaching about the middle ever since I've been here. I got here four and a half or five years ago. I've been talking about how important it is to be those people in the tear, you know, the tear between the issues, that rough place where it's very hard to exist and not uh, uh, run to the corners, not be polarized by it. So what we have happening in our politics in this country is people uh, hear the sound bite and they go right to the issue and they've made a decision. It's all black and white. And that's what's happening in our church. We have a lot of people who for the past 47 years have been arguing about this and they've all said enough is enough. We've gone to our quarters, at corners, it's time to vote and figure out what to do. And I want you to know as I talk to you today about politics, uh, what I want, the, the goal of this, I want you to be assured, is not to tell you who to vote for when an election comes along. That is not the goal at all. My goal is to help you understand how important it is for you as conscientious people of faith being willing to participate in the process. It is not an opportunity. It's a responsibility. That's what we need to talk about here today. So when we talk about this whole uh, sermon series where we're going to be talking about engaging our faith in the public sphere, we're going to be talking about faith and morality and politics and, and the places that we are. And what we really want to answer is we want to answer some questions. And the questions are, how can our faith lead us? How can our faith move us to be engaged in these areas? And how can we do it in such a way that we are honest about and answering the teachings that Jesus gave us? That's what we want to talk about. Today, it just happens to be about politics. And that's what we're looking at, our, our political arena. Now, here, here, I have to admit this right up front. I learned from a very young age there's two things that people of manners do not talk about, religion and politics. You know that, right? And you guys let me get away with the first one quite often, <laughs> religion, all right? But politics, oh, boy. We're going to be talking about politics. That's a tough one. You know, but we have to talk about it. We're going to talk about both of them. And you give me plenty of room to do that, and I really appreciate that. But I just want you to remember that goal. It's to get you to participate, not to tell you who to vote for. And with this in mind, I want to actually uh, do some definitions here. So let's say faith. For, for our purpose, the definition of faith, what we're talking about today, is being people of a certain set of morals, a certain set of beliefs. We're defining it for today's sermon that we have core values and beliefs that help us understand who God is and who we are as humans and the responsibility that comes along with that. And that helps us know the difference between right and wrong and how we put that into play in our lives, okay? That's faith. That's real faith. That's tangible faith as we're looking at it today, all right? And I want to encourage you to not compartmentalize these two definitions, faith and politics. They're not to be compartmentalized. They are in, they're meshed together, all right? So that's faith. Now, politics. Um, I, my favorite definition of politics comes from Gore Vidal. And what Gore Vidal did was he took the etymology of the word and he broke it down. So he took poly, which we know means many, right? And ticks, that's a blood-sucking insect. So, all right, that might be a little pessimistic. And I don't think that's really the definition of uh, politics. But I think you get what I'm saying there. If you ever took a poli science course in college, 
you would have gotten a definition of politics, and it would have come from Harold Laswell, most likely, because he wrote most of the books on sociology and politics and other things. Harold Laswell was a, uh, in the previous century, was a, uh, a professor at Yale. He was an attorney. He was gifted. And here's his definition of politics. Politics, it's this simple. Politics is the process for determining who gets what, when, and how. Politics is the process of who gets what, when, and how. And folks, that's about power. That's all about power, all right? It's about distribution. It's about control. It's about the movement of our society. And when you think about it this way, it's a process for determining all those things which we require for life, really, all right? And in, and in making those decisions on who gets one, what, and how, there's a certain morality that goes along with that. You know, there's a sense of what's just and unjust. And if you don't bring right and wrong into these decisions and what it means to be human and all those types of things, um, what are you basing your politics on? What do you do? Do you just stick your finger at, you know, which way the wind's blowing? You know, oh, everybody's going this way, I'll go this way. Or do you take a poll? What do you think about this? Well, let's take a poll. Well, here's the thing. It is certainly important in a democracy what the polls say. But if everybody in the poll is going in a direction that's unjust, it's still unjust. So we need something much deeper, much firmer, much more uh, a better planted to a foundation to help us engage our faith and politics at the same time. And that's where we come up with these morals, these beliefs, and these things that, that uh, we look at, all right, when we consider these issues, all right? And we need to be engaged to do that. We cannot separate the two things. It is impossible to separate politics from religion. Some people will say, well, I've got my politics over here and I've got my religion over here. But if you look at all the great reformers in our country, every one of them, there are none that did not rely on their faith in order to achieve what they were trying to reform, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. or Dorothy Day, William Jennings Bryan, Frederick. You can go down the list of all of them. And most of them used their faith in their verbiage and the way they talked about the things they were trying to do. You cannot separate these two things. It's absurd to think you can separate your politics and your faith. All right? But there's caution here. There's some things that I need to caution you about. There's three things specifically that I want to caution you about when it comes to faith and politics and engaging those inner morals, those beliefs that you have. And the first thing is, and this is very important, we've seen this over and over again, we have to be very careful when people interject their faith in order to make a point, okay, in the political process, uh, process, you know, this is a big mistake. When people use religion to justify evil or other things, I'm going to ask the ushers to drop the uh, uh, blinds on this side. The sun just came out and it's beautiful, but I know it can get warm fast. We have to be very careful when politicians use religion to justify evil, okay. And there's all kinds of uh, interesting examples of this. Uh, not too long ago, a couple of decades ago, there were um, people who flew planes into buildings, and the last thing they said before those planes hit the buildings was, God is great. Okay? People use uh, God to justify evil all the time. All right? We have to be very careful when we hear this. And I'll be honest with you, there's two people in the world who use this the most, who do this the most, who use scripture and, and religion to uh, justify evil. Politicians and preachers. And it's the truth, we do it all the time. 
you know, and here's what I want you to know. When we go back to the uh, Ten Commandments and we look at the, the Third Commandment, you remember that one, you shall not use God's name in vain. And what we think of as Americans is that's all about cussing, you know, you can't cuss. Folks, that's a very, very small piece of what, uh, of what using God's name in vain is. When Moses brought that law down, when Moses brought that Third Commandment down, there were people who would never even have thought of throwing God's name around casually like the way we do. They would barely ever say Yahweh or God. So cussing wasn't even an issue. The issue with the third commandment was using God's name in vain meant you were using God to argue for something that God would never argue for. Now do you see why preachers and politicians get caught up in this? Because it's interpretation of what God's trying to say. If you use an argument to do something that goes against the will of God that is ultimately evil, that's using God's name in vain. That's why it's the third commandment to rally support around something. And we hear this all the time. I'm gonna read you something, see if you can um, uh, think of who said this. this. This is a good example of it. See if you recognize this quote. I say, my Christian feeling tells me, and now this is a political speech, so this is a politician. I say, my Christian feeling tells me that my Lord and Savior is a warrior. It calls my attention to the man who, lonely and surrounded by a few supporters, recognized what they, the Jews, really were and called for a battle against them, and who by God was not the greatest sufferer, but the greatest warrior. He's talking about Jesus. Who said that? Adolf Hitler, 1922. That's a perfect example there of using these things. It happens all the time. He was going about the streets and the, and the churches and the cities and the towns and the fields in Germany advocating the Nazi party, okay? Now I want to tell you, it's not always the case. Sometimes this uh, logic, this reasoning can be used to make it a, a, an appropriate point that does rhyme with the kingdom of God and the work that we're doing here. But you gotta think through it. You've gotta test it, all right? All right, that was number one, using religion or faith to justify evil. Number two, and we in the church do this all the time. We have to be very careful not to oversimplify the complex issues. When we oversimplify the complex issues, it's really a result of us being unwilling to get our hands dirty and get into the subject. We like the black and white in this world. We like it. When, and here's what I want you to know, okay? Don't go telling stories about Pastor Tom. There are issues that are black and white, okay? There's no, there's no giving in to child abuse. That's a black and white issue. There's right and wrong there. There are other issues that are like that. But a lot of the issues we want to simplify, all right? We just want to simplify it down to a two-minute uh, two soundbite. And that's how we want our answers. We want two minutes on the economy. We want two minutes on immigration. We want two minutes on health care. And we take, that, we take that incredibly complex issue, and we look at those two minutes and say, yep, that's it, and we step into a corner. And it's more complex than that. And we would really rather only want one minute, 60 seconds, okay? But you, no one can take any of those issues and solve it inside of two minutes. And it doesn't matter whether it's immigration, environment, national security, it doesn't matter, all right? Candidates can't answer those questions in two minutes. We have to do more work, it's harder than this. So part of this whole sermon series that we wanna get into is we wanna start to understand these polarized answers that drive people to the corners. You know, it's just not that way. We shouldn't settle for that, you know? Often, often the answer is somewhere in between, and we're the people who are called through our faith to be the people who have the hard conversations in the middle to aid that discovery, all right? Don't oversimplify complex, complex issues, you know? Remember your views. 
You remember your views when you were a teenager? Have they changed, by the way? Do you remember what you thought when you were, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child? When I was uh, 21, I thought like I was 21. Actually, when I was 38, I thought like I was 38. I went into ministry at 38. <laughs> and some of the stuff I preached when I was 38, I am so glad that it's not recorded like everything is now, or you'd be calling me on it. We change, our views change. We mature and we grow. We have to be those people, all right? We have to be those people. Number three, and I think we all tend to do this, and I think we're brought up this way in, in a certain sense. You know, we look, at, we look at Jesus as being apolitical. You know, he wasn't a political figure. We look at scripture and say, scripture has nothing to do with politics. And what we end up doing is we separate ourselves. We say, this is my life of faith right here, and this is what I do in my life of faith. I go to church on Sunday morning, and I, I have my friends at church, and I do that stuff. And then they say, over here is my political views, my political world, my work a day. You know, I go about doing different things, raising my family. And we have these two things separated. That's one of the biggest ma mistakes we make. Again, it is absurd. Jesus calls you to be the type of believing, faithful person that takes everything that you have in your faith, your core beliefs, your, your morals, your convictions, and it overlaps and inter it meshes into everything else that you do, including your politics and your decisions, okay? And you know, if we think, if we think the, uh, the scripture is not political, all you have to do is read the major and minor prophets. We heard what Jenny read to us this morning from Isaiah 58. Did you, did you catch what happened there? The people in Isaiah 58 were talking to God and they were saying, God, we fast all the time. We observe the Sabbath. We do all of these things and you don't answer our prayers. And then God responds and God says, oh, this is the kind of fast you want? You're going to humble yourselves? The fast that I desire is that you feed the hungry, is that you clothe the naked, is that you visit those in prison, you do all these things. And God says, when you live out your faith that way, you call out to me and I will respond, here am I, your God. You think the Bible's not political? It's all political. You have to under understand the context of the day in which it was uh, written. Politics is a process of determining who gets what, when, and how. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. <laughs> a lot to say about that. You dare not divorce your faith from your political work, from your participation. And, and how about Jesus? Is Jesus uh, apolitical? Well, we have to consider that, right? We heard that sermon just a little while ago from Luke 4. I'm not too sure if, if you ever connected these uh, words with political speech, but uh, Jesus gave his reasons why he was here, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to prisoners, to uh, give recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed. That sounds pretty political to me. Do you remember what Jesus' very first sermon was in Mark? He comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in front of you. The kingdom of God is within you. And then he goes on to talk about all these things about the kingdom of God, of which the Luke 4 sermon is part of it. Now, in order to understand that and realize that Jesus isn't being apolitical, we have to understand what those words kingdom mean. If anybody went to somebody in first century Galilee and said, who is the king of king and the Lord of lords? What would the answer be? Caesar Tiberius, right? It wouldn't be Jesus. Everybody knew that Tiberius Caesar was the king of king and the Lord of lords. That was a foregone conclusion. They lived in a monarchy. And in Jesus' day, in that, that little area, when Jesus came into the world, it was Herod Antipas. He was the king. 
He was the one who said who gets what, when, and how, unless Rome was saying it before it got to him. Uh, political parties, you had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. It was all political. So when Jesus comes and his very first sermon is, the kingdom of God is among you and it's within you, he didn't say the kingdom of Tiberius Caesar. He didn't say the kingdom of Herod Antipas. He said the kingdom of God. Jesus could have just said, just came and said, God is right here with you. Here I am. I'm God. I'm right here with you. He didn't. He said the kingdom. And he said, now I'm going to teach you what it means to be citizens of that kingdom. See how political that is? How radical that is? How that changes everything? He unpacked all those ideas for the people of that day. And then what he did, he went about teaching about it. You know, he's, apparently healing the sick was a big deal. He spent, he's, that one night, he stayed up all night healing the sick. How does that affect our decisions? Well, we have, we have, there is a problem with health care. Scriptures don't tell us how to fix the problem with health care, but what it says, in the kingdom of God, of which you're a citizen, sick people are a really important issue. You might want to pay attention to that. Okay. By the way, who founded all the hospitals in this country? Pretty much all of them. We've talked about this. Small groups of Christians that came together, or Jews, or faithful believers in a religion, they came together and said, we need to create a way that the poor can receive care. All the hospitals were for the poor. Why? Because all the doctors made house calls and all the wealthy people could afford to call the doctor and he would come to their house or she would come to their house. Hospitals were made for the poor. It's not until much later that they become profitable ventures. Okay, now it's all different, but that's, that was part of living out the kingdom of God. Jesus heals the sick, we heal the sick. It's something, something very important. Then he gives us all these parables. Lazarus and the rich man, right? Remember that? Not Lazarus raised from the dead, Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus lies at the gate of the wealthy man with the sores on his body and dogs come and lick the sores. That's just how destitute he is. And the rich man goes in and out every day and never stops to help him. Then they, then they die. And what happens? Remember the story? Lazarus is in heaven in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man is in hell. That's a story where Jesus is saying, look, care for the poor is really, really important. He doesn't tell us how to take care of it, but poverty's an issue. It has to be part of how we think about the issue. It has to enter into our thinking. Parable of the sheep and the goats, remember that? We talked about that one a lot too. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. What happened to all the people that walked by those who, who uh, did not participate? Jesus is saying, this is an important issue. In the kingdom of God, you're responsible for taking care of the poor. How about the parable of talents? The king is going away, and he leaves all of his stuff in the care of his servants. And he says, I'll check in with you when you get back. When God created the world and brought Jesus here, and then he went away and said, I'll be back, do you think that we might be responsible for our environment? He doesn't tell us how to, how to save it or keep it. He, he says, this is an important issue in the kingdom of God. I've given you something. Take care of it and use it wisely. The Good Samaritan. Who, and who, who is the hero in the, in the Good Samaritan? It's the foreigner. You know, so the Jew is left beside the road dead, and other people just, well, other Jews just walk by all day. But this Samaritan, this foreigner, this immigrant comes along and helps the Jew. How should that advise our immigration reform? How should that inform how the United States conducts itself in an international platform? It doesn't give us the answers, but it tells us what to be concerned about and how to approach those things. You see what I'm saying here? We can't get away from these issues without turning towards our faith. And I want to I get to the point here about 
our government. I want to remind you that <coughs> our democracy was something that the ancients shunned. Aristotle, Plato, they never thought this would work. You know why they, they, they didn't like it and didn't think it would work? Because they knew that you wouldn't do the hard work. They didn't trust you. All right? They said the people will get lazy and they will never follow through what needs to be done in a democracy to save it. And you know, our, our founders came and they didn't trust us either. That's why we don't directly elect a president. That's why we elect a, the Electoral College. All right, and did you know up until 1914, you didn't even elect your senators? They were appointed by the state legislators. Why? Because they only trusted you to elect the House of Representatives and the appointed senators were an oversight on who you elected. This was such risky business. Our, the founding fathers didn't even know this would work. It was such an experiment. So they took those kind of measures. They didn't trust us. They didn't think we would take the issues seriously. For our democracy to work, it takes conscientious people willing to do the hard work and get involved in these things. So there's three challenges that come with this, and these are really simple. I just want to tell you right now, I've already told you, this isn't an opportunity, it's a responsibility. If you're not registered to vote, you're old enough to be registered to vote, you need to be registered to vote, and you need to exercise that responsibility. There's no, no ifs, ands, or, or buts about that. And when you do that, you ask God to help you make those decisions. The second thing is, be aware of the issues. If a reporter came to you today and said, could you just tell me the four top issues as far as you're concerned in this country. What do we have to be addressing? What are they? And just give me a real short synopsis of why you think that. Could you do it? Know the issues and don't know the issues by one source. All right? Get involved. See what other people think. See what newspapers, different kinds of newspapers, different kinds of news outlets know about these things. And then use your faith to engage it. Okay? That's the second one. The third one, get to know the candidates. Examine them too. They all have histories and those histories are all available. What are their beliefs and their positions? You gotta do this. You know, and then seriously, you know, take, your, take your faith and your democracy seriously by getting involved. Get into the complexity, know those nuances. There's an old movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not, I, uh, Kim and I watched it again recently, it's called The Great Debaters. It's probably from about 2007 or 2008, and The Great Debaters is about a, a debate team at a, at a Methodist black college in Texas, in Marshall, Texas, Wiley College. And the, the year is 1935, and it's really the story about the Farmer family. <coughs> James Farmer Sr. is a deacon at the local Methodist church, he's also a, 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 a teacher at the college, and his son is involved in the story, James, Fran uh, James Farmer Jr. James Farmer Jr. finished high school at 14 and went to Wiley College as a freshman at 14 years old. And James Farmer Jr. ends up on this debate team. Now this debate team has this incredibly stalwart, uh, icy, uh, I mean he is really something else, played by Denzel Washington, the uh, um, uh, manager of this debate team, the coach that takes him around the country. And what he does is he starts to get this debate team prepared. It's four African-American students, and they start to travel around. They start winning these debates. And before you know it, they're, they're undefeated. They're beating everybody, all right? And they get the opportunity to do something unheard of in that day. They get to debate a white college uh, debate team at Oklahoma City University. 
Oklahoma City College, and they go and they win. It's the most amazing thing. And they win, and they've got this 14-year-old freshman on their team. It's, it's a true story. And then they finally get the invitation where the great debaters from Wiley College, this little Methodist black college in Marshall, Texas, gets an invitation to debate the national champions of debate at Harvard. 1935. And they take this trip. They get on the train, and they go up to Harvard, and they get up there, and they debate these issues, and they win. The, the, these kids from this little college in, in uh, you know, Timbuktu beat the best debaters in the country, hands down. It's the most amazing true story. Of, if you haven't seen the film, go get the great debaters. But here's the point I want to make. James Farmer Jr., right? There's this point in the film, it's the most amazing thing. James Farmer Jr. watches his dad bow to what is the, the power at that time, and that is the, the white sheriff in town. And he sees these inconsistencies and these injustices. And then there comes this pivotal moment in the film where, where his, his dad is nose to nose with this sheriff. And you can tell his dad is just at the point where he says, enough is enough. I'm not bowing down anymore. And he sticks up to the sheriff and he wins. And the camera pans over to, to James Farmer Jr. And there's James Farmer Jr. And he's got this look of pride on his face. It, it, it's the most amazing look. And in the film, um, the father and son, James Farmer Jr. and James Farmer Jr. are played by actor and son. Okay, they're, they're an actor and son. You see, this, you see this look on his face there. It's such pride. And you know at that point something's changed. And here's what it makes me think. Will my kids ever see me do something so important in this world to stick up for something, to stick up for injustices like that that'll make a difference? Will your children, will the children of this church ever see you do something like that to the point where you don't go with what everybody else is doing and they see you stick up for the injustice and, and do something? My prayer is that yes, that we, they will see that and we will do that. That's my prayer, that we can be the kind of people who engage politics, who engage the injustices, who engage the wrongs of this world in such a way that we can help make it right through all of the ways we live out our faith in this world. That's a true story. James Farmer Jr. came on to be one of the four greatest civil rights leaders in our country, standing alongside Martin Luther King and others. In 1998, he got the uh, American Freedom Award from, Award from Bill Clinton, a year before he passed away. It's an amazing, amazing story. And we're challenged by that. And here's what I want us to know. Those decisions, our democracy, our world, rises and falls on the willingness of conscientious people of faith like you to get involved and participate in the process that can bring healing and peace to this broken world. That's how we live out our personal faith in a public life when it comes